Victor Hugo, who famously wrote the novel Les Miserables, it's very, very long. I recommend going and watching the, uh, the musical. He said these words during the French Revolution. He said, there's one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, and it's an idea whose time has come. He said, there's something stronger than all the force and the might of a, of a powerful army. It's an idea whose time has come. See, effective communication delivers a well-formed idea at the right time to the right audience. And when that happens, when those convergence of things happen, it's powerful and profound. It's why, uh, if if you've seen some of these TED Talks that go viral, right? And it's why others sometimes flop. If you were to take the top three TED Talks, they've received over 168 million views on their website alone. Advertisers have known it for years. Effective marketing strategies are all about getting the right message to the right audience at the right time. You notice this in stand-up comedy as well. Greg Dean, who's been performing and teaching stand-up comedy for over 40 years, understands that comedic timing is critical to landing a joke. It's more than a science. It's an art form. And a successful comedian knows the art of reading an audience from night to night to deliver the punchline at just the right time. He writes, uh, Greg Dean writes this, the timing then is in the relationship. See, when it comes to effective communication, the key is to take a well-formed idea delivered at the right time to the right audience. You've noticed you might have a great idea, but if it's delivered too early or too late, that good idea goes unnoticed and unheard. This morning, we're in John chapter 7, where Jesus delivers a well-formed idea at the right time to the right audience. And this idea represents a catalytic shift in how to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life. And Jesus' timing is perfect. It's dramatic and it is poignant. And the effect leaves no one unmoved. At the end of Jesus' idea, everyone begins to deliberate and discuss and say, what could this mean? So if you have a Bible this morning, would you turn with me to John chapter 7? It's on page 892 in the black hardcover Bibles near you. And as we work through this long chapter, the story is going to break down into three basic parts. First, we'll see the situation. We're going to see there's a lot of historical background that needs to be unpacked so that we can enter into this story, so that we can feel the drama of the moment when Jesus unpacks his catalytic idea. Second, we'll see the invitation in verses 37 to 39, where Jesus gives this catalytic idea. And then finally, we'll see the deliberation in verses 40 to 52 as everyone begins to form and express opinions and to make decisions about what they believe about the claims of Jesus Christ. So we'll see the situation, we'll see the invitation, and then we'll see the deliberation. Let's start together in verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go into Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. 
So if you remember, we've been kind of following Jesus' story. Um, Galilee is a region to the north, and Judea is the region to the south where the city of Jerusalem is. And John tells us that opposition against Jesus is mounting. So for a while, he avoids going south into Judea where the religious leaders and the establishment are plotting to kill him. And he spends his time over these next six months um, in, in, in Galilee, the, this region to the north. Now, don't let that misguide you. Sometimes we might think that he was avoiding his death. Listen, the whole reason Jesus came was to die. He predicts his death over and over in the gospel, which means he was aware that it was coming. And he isn't this helpless victim who just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. In fact, Jesus says, he'll say it later in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord. When the time comes, when it's right, when the hour comes for him to be lifted up on the cross and glorified, when that time comes, at the right time, at that hour, he will willingly lay down his life for us. But the time hasn't come yet. Now, John also tells us that it's the Feast of Booths, which is also called the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you see those two uh, terms in the Bible, Feast of Booth, Feast of Tabernacles, it's talking about the same event. This was one of three pilgrim feasts in the, uh, according to Jewish uh, practice, which meant, a pilgrim feast meant um, that if you didn't live in Jerusalem, at the time of that feast, you needed to travel to Jerusalem to participate in that feast. So they would make the, 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 the pilgrimage and come out to Jerusalem to observe the feast. So there's three pilgrim feasts. If, you've got, if you're taking notes, write these down. These are important. They come up over and over again. The first is the Passover feast. This is the one we've talked about it at length several times. It commemorated um, Israel being delivered out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. So if you go and you read the book of Exodus, you've got all the plagues. There's the last plague, the final plague, the death of the firstborn son, and everyone who takes shelter under the blood of the lamb, the angel of death, passes over them and preserves the life inside of that house. That's the, the Passover. And every year they were to remember and rehearse that Passover event. The second pilgrim feast is the Feast of Pentecost. This comes about 50 days after the Passover feast, and it commemorates the giving of the law and the covenant that made them the people of God. So as the people of God are delivered out of Egypt, they, 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 they go, and 50 days later, the, God gives them the law. He establishes the sacrificial system, and he says, okay, you're going to be my people. I've delivered you. Now let's set up order. Let's set up how we're going to relate to each other. That's the Feast of Pentecost. Now the Feast of Booths, the one we're talking about, commemorated the provision and sustenance of God in the wilderness to bring them to the promised land. So after they give them the law, they're making their way to the promised land and they have to cross through the wilderness. This is a barren desert land and, it, and only by the grace of God are they sustained. He provides water for them. He provides food for them. He provides sustenance so that they can make it through this wilderness journey. Now, if you think about those three feasts, they're not arbitrary rituals. They're not just kind of uh, uh, put down on paper from some arbitrary means to, to go, hey, uh, uh, it's good to have rituals in religion, so here's some. No, no, no. These are dramatic reenactments to remember God's mighty deliverance of slavery. Think about it. 
They, they, they were a, 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 a redemptive formed people. God had redeemed them and created them as his people, delivered them out of slavery, out of the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, gave them the law, gave them instruction on how uh, an unholy people would live with a holy God. And then it talked about how God sustained them all the way to the promised land. Doesn't that sound a lot like our life as Christians? He delivers us out of the bondage and slavery of sin. He gives us the good news of his law of how we relate to him, how we can live a life of thriving and flourishing. And then what? He sustains us till we get to the promised land. And every year they would rehearse their story. Why? Because as humans, we're so prone to forget. We, we, we have identity amnesia. We forget who we are. We forget all the things that God has done in our life, how he has been faithful, even when we've been unfaithful, to continue to lovingly guide and protect and provide for us. And these feasts, these celebrations, these rituals were to get them on a yearly basis to remember who they are. And his gracious, God's gracious invitation for us to become the people of God. Now, this Feast of Booths, this Feast of Tabernacles, is a celebration of thanksgiving for the fall harvest of olives and grapes. It's a, it's a joyous celebration. And during this festival, like I said, Jews living outside of Jerusalem would travel into the city. And what they would do is they would gather these branches with, with big um, leaves, and they would make these makeshift tents out of branches and big leaves. And they would live in these tents. That's why they're called booths, the Feast of Booths. They would make these little tents, and they would live in them. So if you were walking through the, 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 the streets of Jerusalem uh, during the Feast of Pentecost, you would see these little um, tents set up for the people to live in. And Jews living in Jerusalem, even though they had homes, they would build those same makeshift structures on the top of their flat roofs. So everybody was essentially participating in sacred camping. It was like a big camp out for the whole city of Jerusalem. An ancient Jewish historian, Josephus, tells us that it was the most popular of all the feasts. And during their time in the wilderness, they were this nomadic people, right? God would lead them, and, and each day they would, they would pick up their, 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 their tents, and they would they'd move to the next location that God was leading them. And they were a nomadic people living in a barren land with few natural provisions. And this sacred reenactment of those wilderness years reminded them that God protected them, and that God provided for them. Now, there's one ceremony in particular that we need to unpack that happened during the Feast, the feast of Booths, uh, and it's particularly relevant as we enter into the drama of this story. So every day, this is a week-long feast, the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam. I've got a slide here to show you where that is in relationship to everything. So you've got the Pool of Siloam here down at the bottom. It's that little blue square. It's a little bitty pool. And you see where the temple is. It's outlined in the orange box there. And each day, a priest would go down from the temple, down to this Pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher. And he'd go down, and, and the people would follow him. He'd, he'd reach down. He would fill this golden pitcher up with water. And then the priest would walk back those six blocks to the temple. And on the way, there's people surrounding him. And on the way back, the people would sing this refrain from Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
Now imagine it, they walk back into the temple, the people would take their place, the priests would enter into the inner courts and the shofar, which is that trumpet made out of a, a ram's horn, it would blast three times. And as the pilgrims walked, the priest would walk around the, 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 the golden altar and they would take this golden pitcher and they would hold it up Meanwhile, you've got the temple choir in the background, and they would sing selections from the Hillel Psalms, which is Psalm 113 to 118. Let me read a portion of Psalm 116. So imagine, they're, they're marching around this altar. They've, they're holding up this picture. You've got the temple choir in the background singing, I love the Lord. He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he's inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. And then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Can you see it? Can you hear it? Can you hear the choir singing? Meanwhile, at the end of these songs, the men in the crowd would provide percussion. They would, they would shake those bouquet of branches, providing the rhythm section for the choir. And they would cry out, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. And then at that moment, the water is poured out. That water that they had taken from the pool of Siloam, it's poured out on the, uh, the altar with the daily wine offering. So you have water and wine being poured out in their respective silver bowls, and it's poured out on this altar before the Lord. Now, this ceremony commemorated two things. First, it reminded the Israelites how God had provided, miraculously provided water for them in the desert. I don't know how many of you have ever traveled in the desert, but there's not a lot of water there. It's what makes it a desert. And people need water. So they're in the desert, they need water, but there isn't natural water there. And so God has to provide water for them. In Numbers chapter 20, we see the Israelites in a, in a uh, precarious situation. They're in the desert, there's no water, and they're getting very, very thirsty, and they start to fear for their lives. In fact, they start complaining, God, you led us all the way out here just so that we could die in the desert? Why would you do that? Why would you be so cruel to, to miraculously deliver, provide for us all this time, and now here we are. At the brink of death, we're about to die. There's no water. Why would you do that? Why would you go through all of that? But God told Moses, Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, this rock right here, before their eyes to yield its water. And so shall you bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. God says, water? That's a pretty simple one for me. I can make this rock yield its water. I bet you didn't know rocks have water in them. I didn't know it either. But God can make water come from a rock. And he tells them, gather around this rock. And what might seem um, unlikely, improbable, impossible, I can provide water from anywhere. So stop grumbling and complaining. Second, this ceremony looked forward to the day when God would pour out his spirit on all of God's people in this messianic, day, in this messianic age. See, there was this longing in the Old Testament 
for God's spirit to be present among everybody. See, in the Old Testament, God's spirit would come upon um, prophets, priests, and kings, kind of the important figures in the life of um, Israel. And, it would, it, and his spirit would come on them for a specific reason, for a specific purpose. And there was this longing. And God said, there's coming a day when I will pour out my spirit on everybody and everyone will have the, the spirit of God inside of them, animating them, teaching them what is right and guiding them and leading them. And so this ceremony is rich with history. It's rich with symbolism and it would happen every morning during the festival. So if you were there, you would go through this ritual seven days in a row. Now, John tells us that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for this feast, and midway through the feast, Jesus goes into the temple and begins teaching. And his teaching is unlike anything they've ever heard. It stirs up controversy among the crowd. Some hear his teaching, and they marvel at it, and they put their faith in him. Some question his authority. How are you? You're untrained. You're not a true official rabbi. How can you be here teaching us? Some even suggest that he's possessed by a demon. And some start calling the police to have him arrested. But nothing comes of it at this point. And that's the situation as we enter into this last day of the feast. Remember, seven days going through this ceremony. Midway through the feast, Jesus is almost arrested. There's this heightened elevation, this drama. Now look with me at verse 37 to see this invitation from Christ. On the last day of the feast, the great day, the final day, the end, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's the last day of the feast. Day after day, the people have gone down to the pool of Siloam. They've watched the high priest dip his golden pitcher into the water. They've, they've walked back with him, singing the song of Isaiah. With joy, you will draw from the water of salvation. They've entered into the temple. They've sung the halal songs. They've heard the temple choir. They've rejoiced in the redemption and salvation that comes from God. They've given thanks to the Lord for his provision and his sustenance. They've prayed for God to continue to provide rain for the harvest. They've, they've prayed and asked that God would send his Messiah to deliver them, to pour out his spirit among them. And now on this final day, at the height of the festival, the great day in the midst of the crowd, you can, you can just imagine as the volume diminishes, as the water is poured out, as the ritual comes to an end, as everyone is about ready to just go back to their booths, Jesus stands up. He cries out at the top of his lungs. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus has an idea whose time has come. And he delivers it at the right time to the right audience. And the moment is profound and powerful. Just remember all that symbolism, all that history, all the significance of that ceremony. And Jesus is saying, it's right for us to thank God for his provision of water in the wilderness. God provided water that satisfied their thirst when they were on the brink of death in the desert. Now, if you still thirst, if your soul is thirsty, come to me for water that will satisfy the thirst in your soul. 
And in his dramatic invitation, you'll notice Jesus used three verbs. He said, thirst, come, and drink. If you're thirsty, come and drink. And each word provides a powerful word picture of the necessary elements of salvation. Let's look at each one. That first word, thirst. Thirst is an acknowledgement and a recognition of our need. True thirst is, is dire and it can't wait. When you've, and I, and I wonder, have we ever really actually been that thirsty, like on the brink of death? What's the thirstiest you've ever been? When I was thinking about that question, the first thought popped into my mind, a memory that came from when I was a senior in high school. See, I grew up in Texas where football is God. Boys dream of playing under the Friday night lights. And to prepare for the yearly ritual, every season began with what we call two-a-days. Two, three-hour practices, six days a week. This is where we sacrificed our bodies on the altar, hoping that maybe we would go to state this year. Now, have you ever been to Texas in August? I don't recommend it. Don't ever go to Texas in August. August comes after 60 straight days of 100-degree weather. So all the concrete in the city heats up and bakes. The, the land is parched. There's a humidity level such that it makes showering pointless. Then you're weighed down by 30 pounds of gear, and you sweat till you cannot sweat anymore. Now, one particular day, it was the second practice. Remember, you have a first practice of, of three hours, and you go home for, for a bite to eat, and you come back for the second practice, and we were coming to the end. And every practice ends with conditioning drills. We called these suicides. You'd run across the field and back, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, across and back, until we couldn't run anymore. Now, that particular day, someone mouthed off to the coach, said something under their breath, but the coach heard it, and he had had enough. He blew his whistle, and he said, that's it. No more water till practice is over. Now, I'm pretty sure that's illegal, but it didn't matter. There were no cops there. And so we ran, and we ran, and we ran some more. And I remember the trainers, they were told to stand back, and they were looking on us with pity as our thirst found no relief. I longed for water that day more than I had ever longed for water. And when practice was over, the trainers had set up tables with water and every player rushed to that table to grab a water bottle to quench their thirst. Nobody lingered and said, hey, what are you, what are you thinking about doing after practice? Everyone to a man ran for that table to grab that water. Why? Because the thirsty recognized their deprivation and they go looking for water. It's a conscious craving for water that will not go away until it's satiated. Jesus' invitation to us is universal. He says, if anyone is thirsty, it's open-ended. The only qualification, the only prerequisite to coming to Christ is thirst. Seven mile, are you thirsty? Now, what causes our thirst? Well, first, the Bible teaches us that everybody is born thirsty. We, be, we, we, we enter into this world spiritually 
thirsty. And so we go looking for things to quench our thirst. And as we continue to live uh, trying to find that, we, we sin and, and we go looking for things that don't satisfy and it just exacerbates the problem. The question isn't, are you spiritually thirsty? The question is, what do you go to find to satisfy your thirst? Because everybody is longing. Everybody is thirsty. And instead of drinking from the fountain that God provides, we continue to try to find water on our own. Look what Jeremiah the prophet says in chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. The first, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And here's the second. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what we do is we abandon the true fountain of living waters, and instead we try to build structures of independence to find water on our own. And the problem is we're not good at building those structures. Our structures don't hold water. And so we, be, we continue we, we can't find things to satisfy our thirst, and we continue in our thirstiness. And in addition to that, we live in a sin-soaked world, which is, here's what that means. The burdens and disappointments of life itself will make you more and more parched. So what we do is we abandon the fountain of living waters. We go searching for things that never satisfy. And then as we live life, the hardships, the disappointments, the burdens of life itself make us more thirsty. And so we're parched. And there's nothing else that will satisfy our soul. Friends, do you feel thirsty? Are you thirsty? Is your soul parched? Are you longing for peace and forgiveness and salvation? If you are, it begins with a recognition of your thirst. See, to come to Jesus, the only thing you need is need. You have to recognize that I have great need. I'm thirsty. The second word is come. This word signifies a movement towards Christ because the thirsty soul, what does it do? It reaches out for something to drink. It's not a question of if the thirsty will move towards something. It's a matter of what you will move toward because everyone moves towards something to satisfy their soul. Jesus is saying, look to me as the only source of soul-satisfying water. Come to me and come to me alone. In our pursuit to quench our thirst, we come to Jesus with all of, our, all of us, our head, our heart, and our hands. We come to him with all that we are, and we forsake all other options. It's not Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus plus nothing, and that equals everything. See, Jesus is not one brand of water among many brands of water that are all basically the same. You ever gone in the market basket and you see all the different labels of water? They all pretty much taste the same. I would challenge you to a blind test that you could tell the difference between the different brands of water. And Jesus is saying, I am not one brand among many brands that will satisfy you like water. He's saying, there is no other brand. Every other option will only make you thirstier. So this means you turn away from self-reliance. Imagine you're, in, a, you're a, in the desert and there's an oasis there for you to drink. But in the pride of your self-reliance, you say, I'm not going to drink your oasis. I'm going to dig my own well. Jesus stands as the oasis 
in the middle of the desert. And too many times we stand there digging our own well saying, Jesus, I don't want your water. I want to dig it out myself. That's what an all set prideful heart does. It says, I'll dig my own well. Thanks, but no thanks. If we're thirsty, we have to come to Jesus. And the third word is drink. When you drink something, what are you doing? You're appropriating it. You're, you're taking it in. You're consuming it. You give a thirsty person a cup of water. If someone says, I'm thirsty, and you give them the water, it doesn't do anything until they what? Drink that water until it's consumed. So drinking here means receiving and embracing Jesus. It's not enough to say, Jesus, I'm thirsty. It's not enough to come to Jesus. You have to put your faith in him. Each word, thirst, come, and drink, represents this progression of genuine faith. It begins with a recognition of need. I'm thirsty. It means coming to him, turning to Christ as our only provision, and turning away from all other providers. And this third thing, drinking, a trust that he will bring satisfaction. Listen to how Ligonier Ministries describes faith. Saving faith is not a cold, empty rationalism that simply gives intellectual assent to facts. At the same time, it's not a blind entrusting of ourselves into the hands of someone else. Instead, it's a warm, intellectually vital embrace of the Savior in his promise, believing that he can and will do all that he has pledged. Faith means believing that Jesus is the only source of water for your thirsty soul. And then making decisions, building your life, making commitments that align with that true belief. Faith it has a content. It involves our head. It means understanding who Christ is, understanding our need, and then making decisions and commitments that align with that belief. Faith involves our head, our heart, and our hands. Now, what happens when we put our faith in Jesus? Jesus says, if the thirsty come and drink, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this note of further explanation. Now, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in Christ, we're not simply given a meager cup of water only to become thirsty again. The metaphor here is one of abundance because of a new water source that never runs dry. And if you remember, this isn't the first time that this living water metaphor has been used in the Gospel of John. Remember, we've been walking through John's Gospel. In John chapter 4, Jesus has this conversation with this woman at the well. And he tells her, uh, I, I have water for you that if you drink uh, from it will flow wellsprings that lead up into eternal life. Remember John 4, 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So an eternal spring of living water starts to come forth from within and it flows into this river of living water. Now John is going to discuss in much more detail, John 14 to 16, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But, and we'll go into much more detail then. But for now, John tells us that it's God the Holy Spirit 
who produces this spiritual awakening in us and causes us to live for Christ. That's, when, that's why he said, but he was talking about the spirit in reference to these, uh, these rivers of living water. So God doesn't just give us a little cup and say, hey, I hope you don't get thirsty again. What he's saying is there's an abundant supply, a never-ending supply, rivers, multiple rivers that will flow forth from you that will keep your soul nourished and you won't get thirsty again. And and he said, it will be the spirit that does that. The spirit comes inside of us and animates us and provides the, the nourishment for our souls. See, it's the spirit that gives life. We saw this last week in John 6, verse 63. uh, Jesus said, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So you will not satisfy your thirsty soul through your own striving, your own efforts. Your flesh contributes nothing to the satisfaction of your soul. If you want satisfaction, if in your deadness you want life, it's the spirit who gives life that life. Now think about this. Think about the significance of the Feast of Booths, all that that we talked about. It's this festival commemorating God's provision in the desert wilderness, that without God's intervention, they would have died for lack of food and water. Remember, they're on the brink of death. They have no source of water, and God makes water come out of this rock to miraculously provide for them so that they don't die. Likewise, without the Spirit, We are in a dry and parched land without food and water. But God the Father, in love for us, gives us Christ as our bread. Remember chapter 6, the bread of life. And now the Spirit comes as our water. And John tells us that all of this will take place after Jesus is glorified. So God the Father, in his love for us, in his provision for us, gives us spiritual food in Christ, gives us spiritual water in the Holy Spirit. And John says that the Spirit will be given after Jesus is glorified. John tells us that the Spirit of the living God will come after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Now what's important to take in right now is that Jesus is standing up in the midst of this feast at the end and boldly declaring, All of your longing, all of the anticipation for God to provide joy and salvation, life in the spirit, satisfaction in your soul. Jesus is saying everything that this ceremony points to is being fulfilled in me right now. If you're thirsty, come and be satisfied. Now here's what's really cool. When we believe in Jesus, Not only does our soul have access to this living water from within so that we never become thirsty again, it's this picture of rivers that are overflowing, flowing with abundance, so that from our abundance, we might offer it to those who are thirsty around us. God blesses us to be a blessing to others. See, the parched become satisfied. We get this living water from God, and, 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 and in that satisfaction, the thirsty are renewed. And now from a place of strength and joy and gratitude, we get to invite other thirsty people to come and drink. Jesus invites us to drink of his living water. Yes, so that we might be refreshed and renewed. But we're also further invited to join him on his mission to invite others to come and drink. So we should pause right now and think, who are you 
in relationship with. That as you've gotten to know them, as you hear, uh, as you know their stories, as you hear about them talk about their lives, that you would go, you know, one way I could maybe summarize or categorize uh, 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 where they are right now, I, I would describe them as thirsty. Life isn't working out for them. There are things in their life where they would say, I feel parched, I feel empty, I feel dry. Whatever words they might use around it that you could go, it sounds like thirst. Who comes to mind? Who needs to come and drink? Write down their names. Start praying for them by name. Pray that God would give you opportunities to share Christ with them. First, we have to drink from Christ ourselves. We need to be renewed. And as we're renewed, as we're strengthened, we look for others who might need a drink of water as well. So we've seen the situation We've seen the invitation. Now let's look at the last few verses to see the deliberation that ensues. Like I told you, as soon as Jesus says these words, everyone begins discussing, discussing what this might mean. Verse 43. So there was a division among the people over them. You see, you can't make a dramatic statement like Jesus just made and expect people to just kind of shrug their shoulders and walk away. And that's exactly what Jesus wants. He extends this invitation of eternal life found in him, and he wants people to interact with it. He wants people to consider it. He wants people to make a decision. And there's basically three ways people respond to Jesus' invitation. The first is some people accept it. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, right after Jesus said it, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. You see, some people hear Jesus' invitation and they say, this is the one we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for someone to come onto the scene and talk about the fulfillment of all of our longing. This is the capital P prophet we've been waiting for. Moses promised that there was coming a day when God would send another deliverer to lead us out of an ultimate exodus, and this is him. Others said it like this. This is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who's come to bring God's new covenant. See, these people are thirsty. They're longing. They have their eyes open. They have their ears open to see when will God provide water that will satisfy our souls. And they see that Jesus has water to quench their thirst. And they readily accept the invitation. Water is extended to them and they say, thank you. I've been waiting and longing for someone to offer me that kind of water. See, you have to remember, the Israelite people were steeped in the scriptures. They were steeped in this waiting and this longing that there was all of this, this prerequisite longing and desire for God to make good on his promises. And so when Jesus shows up and says, I am the fulfillment of all your longing, I am the fulfillment of your promises, they're ready and willing to say, yes, thank you. Thank you for the water. The Spirit of God has primed them and made them ready to hear the words of Christ. And they respond by faith and accept his invitation. So some people accept him, but also some people reject him. Some said, is this, is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Here we see others reject the invitation and the claims of Jesus outright. See, we might describe these people as hardened skeptics, hardened cynics. They think they have all the details. They think they've got all the facts. They think they've got all the information necessary to make the right call. But we see that they only have part of the information, right? They say, isn't Christ supposed to come from Galilee? The Christ isn't supposed to come from Galilee, right? Don't the scriptures say he's supposed to come from the line of David and from the village of Bethlehem? And on that point, they're absolutely correct. And so they look at Jesus and go, he's a Galilean like us. We know his mother and father. He grew up in Nazareth, so he didn't come from Bethlehem. Therefore, he can't be the Christ. They, they conclude Jesus does not qualify to be the Messiah because he's not from the town of Bethlehem. And they think we have all of our facts. They're straight. It's not him. But the problem is they don't have all the facts right. Jesus was, in fact, actually born in Bethlehem. He's from the town of Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth, but he's from Bethlehem. And he is from the line of David. Joseph, his stepfather, is from the line of David. If you trace Joseph's lineage all the way back, he's a descendant of David. And when Joseph adopts him, Jesus as his own, he bears the line of David. So technically, beautifully, Jesus meets the criteria. But if they had bothered to learn more, if they had asked some questions, if they had put their doubts on hold and asked and inquired, they would have found that their surface level understanding didn't add up. And that's exactly the point. Hardened skeptics, irrational cynics, rarely go beyond the superficial and surface level because in actuality, they don't really want to believe. We often think that we come to investigations as purely objective investigators, but that's not how any of us are wired. When we come to investigate something, we have predetermined uh, directions and desires of where we think we want the investigation to go. And so what happens is, is we, um, by confirmation bias, we, we don't go down avenues of investigation that we think will contradict our predetermined conclusions, and we only look at the evidence that will affirm what we already want to be true. And so what happens is they build their case on sloppy evidence, they make hasty conclusions, and they reject him. In addition to those who reject him on intellectual grounds, John also tells us that some are even more antagonistic. And in their animosity, they just want Jesus removed from the scene, and they call in for guards to arrest him. Now, let me ask you this. If you've rejected Jesus, if you've said he's not the Messiah, he's not worth my time, on what grounds have you rejected him? Have you carefully considered the claims of Jesus for yourself? Or have you just adopted what someone else has said about him? I'm always shocked how many times I'm engaging with someone who, who, who doesn't share the beliefs I do. And I always ask, have you ever read the Bible? And they say no. And it's always like, okay, so you've rejected outright this belief based on the Bible and you've never actually read the Bible. Or you ask, how much investigation have you actually done? Have you considered it? And most of the time what I find is people have rejected the opinions and the rejection of others as their own 
rejection. And they have not for themselves done the work necessary to look at the claims of Christ. If you have rejected Christ, is it because you've done a thorough investigation yourself? You've read the Bible. You've looked into the person and work of Christ for yourselves and found him to be wanting? Or are you adopting someone else's rejection? You see that you can either reject, you can either accept him as the Messiah or you can reject him. But John also gives us a third response. Deliberate. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to him, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. And Nicodemus, who we've seen before, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Quickly, we don't have time to unpack all of that. John tells us that the chief priests and Pharisees send a group of officers to arrest Jesus, and they're unable or unwilling to do their job because they're torn. They're like, listen, I know I've got a job to do, but have you heard what he's saying? Have you listened to what he's saying? We've, we've never heard someone speak like he's speaking. We've never heard someone give an invitation like he just gave. We've never seen someone with the, 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 the gumption to stand up and say the things he said. And they're not ready necessarily to commit to believing him, but they're also not ready to arrest him. They're in process. They're deliberating. Right, what it de- to deliberate means? It means to, to thoughtfully process and weigh the options. And so they're, they're trying to consider what they should do with Jesus. And not only are the officers deliberating, but we run into our old friend Nicodemus. Remember, he's a Pharisee. We met him back in chapter 3. And he went by cover of night to meet Jesus for himself to investigate who he is. And it left him considering if he might be the Messiah. And here, he sticks up for Jesus. And he says, listen, at the very least, doesn't he deserve a fair hearing and trial? Shouldn't we actually investigate and listen and hear more of what he has to say instead of hastily, irrationally, quickly coming to arrest him? Now think about receiving an invitation for a party, okay? You get an e-vire, maybe it comes um, in the mail. You have a few options in front of you. You can either accept the invitation or you can reject the invitation, right? And you send a notification with your response or you can hang on to it. You can put it on the fridge or you can tag it in your inbox and you kind of think about it. You, you deliberate. So maybe you talk with your friend, you, 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 you talk with your spouse, you, you look at the calendar and you say, listen, I kind of want to go, but I want to see if some better options come in, right? Or you, you're you're kind of managing your schedule. But ultimately, you have to make a decision about what you're going to do with this invitation. If the time comes and passes for the party and you never decide, what happens? You've ultimately made a decision, right? If the time comes and goes for the party, your process of deliberation is over and ultimately you decided, though it wasn't with notification, you decided to reject the invitation. To endlessly deliberate is to endlessly speculate and it is to ultimately reject the invitation. So when you hear that invitation, you have three responses. First, you can accept it. 
You can say Jesus is the Christ. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the only one offering water that will satisfy my soul. Or you can reject it outright. You can go, I don't, I don't know who it is, but, that, but it's not him. He's not going to be the one to satisfy my soul. I'm going to figure it out on my own, or I've got some other ideas of things I want to pursue. And you might go, I reject him outright. But I know a lot of times we, we, we sit in this process of the third option of deliberating. We go back and forth, and we're considering, and, 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 we, and, we, and we don't want to commit to one side or the other, and so we kind of straddle the line. But friends, there's coming a day when if you decide to endlessly speculate, the decision will be made for you. Ultimately, we have to make a call. Friends, there is an invitation from Jesus on the table, and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you find in your soul this longing, like the prophet Isaiah said in 12.3, to draw water with joy from the well of salvation? Jesus says, I am the well of salvation where you can drink freely and experience ever-increasing joy. Or do you long to come to the feast of this table of grace promised in Isaiah 55.1? Isaiah promised that there would come a day when there'd be a table set before us to say, come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And Jesus says, I am the one who sets this table of grace where you can freely eat and drink and be satisfied. And did you know that the Bible ends with this same invitation? At the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, verse 17, John the Apostle writes this. The spirit and the bride, who is Christ, says this. The church says, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. See, at the very end of the Bible, the Apostle John picks up on this metaphor that he learned from Jesus and says, let the thirsty come and take the water of life without price. At the end of the day, those who come to Jesus aren't the moral aren't the well put together, it's not the self-sufficient. Those who ultimately come to Christ are the thirsty. Those who are thirsty come to Jesus. Seven Mile, let's be thirsty people this morning. Let's come to Jesus with nothing but our thirst and drink the living water.